All right, if you have a Bible, go and open it up to the book of Malachi. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, raise your hand. We'll get one to you. You definitely want to have a Bible. Also, if you have a smartphone or tablet, you can open it up to the YouVersion Bible app, and you can follow along there as well. Uh, so there's notes in there for you to be able to take, as well as with the YouVersion Bible app, you can actually take notes in the app. I don't know if you knew that. And then you can actually save them for later, and they'll be marked with where it was at in the, in the message and everything as well. So uh, kind of a, a cool thing to be able to use. Malachi chapter four is where we're going to be today. We're finishing our study in Malachi. I love when we finish books of the Bible. It feels like such a, an accomplishment to me. Uh, we've, we've gone through another book of the Bible. Such a cool thing. Um, and we're actually going to be starting uh, next Sunday. We're going to be starting a, a series through Nehemiah. So we're going to do Nehemiah. And then um, after Nehemiah, we're probably going to do Romans. So that's probably the next like four or five years uh, for us. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm going to try to do Romans faster than that, but uh, it's going to be hard. Yes. Yeah, two years? Wow, you guys, man, no, no, no hope for me. All right, um, so yeah, that's our projected, at least the next year, Nehemiah, then Romans, something like that. That's what I'm thinking we're going to do. It's a, it's a cool thing. But here as we finish up the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verses 1 uh, through 6 is where we're going to be. Uh, according to an article in Forbes magazine, uh, that they wrote in December 2018, bad lighting is associated with a range of ill health effects, both physical and mental, such as eye strain, headaches, fatigue, and also stress and anxiety. That's crazy that, that bad lighting can do such a thing. Just something so simple as bad, let alone the people you have to go to work with, right? There's also the bad lighting kind of a thing. Uh, also, according to WebMD, the sun's UV rays help your body make vitamin D, which is important for your bones, blood cells, and immune system. It also helps you uh, to take in and use certain minerals like calcium and phosphorus. Uh, light is a big deal. The sunlight is a big deal, and it's important for us to be in the light. There's this weird things that happen when you're in the dark, and when you're in the dark for too long, it just messes with you in a different way. And so we, we are a people who've been designed to be in the light. It's something that we absolutely need, and there's a, a distinct connection in our health uh, and the idea of being in the light, that if we're not in the light enough, then it affects us physically, and it affects us mentally. But the truth also, uh, this also extrapolates into our spiritual lives as well. The implications are not just physical and mental, but light affects our spiritual health as well. And that's really what, what Malachi chapter 4 is about as this, this prophecy closes down, as the, the book of Malachi draws to a close. It's about the spiritual implications uh, to our health that are affected by light. And so here's our big idea uh, as we look at Malachi chapter 4. It's this, that Jesus alone has the light and healing that our souls need. That's the big concept that's happening right here in, in Malachi chapter 4. Um, and so let's read it together, these six verses, and then we'll go back through and we'll break it down together taking a look at it. It says this, Malachi chapter 4 verse 1 says, that, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. That, uh, that will leave them neither root nor branch. But you, to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out and grow, like, uh, grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall 
Trample the wicked, for they shall be as ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 4, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send, uh, send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Let's pray. Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, we pray that you would help us to understand you. That, that as we've just read, that the sun of righteousness would shine upon our lives. That we would know you more, that we would be drawn into your presence even more, and that you would transform us and bring the healing to us that we need, God. We need you to do what only you can in causing us to be made more like you, in fixing all the brokenness that's there, in causing us to have purpose and value beyond just right here and right now, but an eternal kind of a thing. So Lord, would you do the work that only you can? And would you uh, miraculously transform this place from just a hotel into a, a place of meeting with you, that, that you would perform that work, that your Holy Spirit would be here among us, moving uh, in us and through us and teaching us and drawing us nearer to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Malachi chapter 4, we're going to look at it in two parts together today. Verses 1 through 3, the coming judgment. And then verses 4 through 6, the coming redemption. Uh, so this is kind of the, the idea that, uh, as it closes down. Now chapter 4 of Malachi, it's sort of like an appendix or uh, like a, a so what. Um, not your appendix, but like, you know, the additional parts uh, of a book. Um, so it's like, it's like a, a, an add-on to the very end. Uh, it's to say, you know, when we look back across the last three chapters and you see all of these six disputes that God goes through with his people and, and God brings up these topics and these issues and he says, this is an issue and this is an issue and this is an issue. As we get to chapter four, it sort of is disconnected from everything else. And really what it's doing is it's giving us the big, so why does this matter? So what? Why did you say all this? Why does God care so much to say these things to his people in this way? Why, why does it matter to him at all? Well, the reason is that the, the truth is that that there are two primary reasons why God did this then and why God does this today. That, that God intervenes in our lives. You ever experience that? When God interrupts your life and, and you're just kind of doing your thing, you're going through the motions of your life, you're, you're chasing whatever you want to chase and God kind of says, hey, no, I don't like this. Stop that. Or, or he just he gives you that emotional feeling inside or maybe stuff on the outside is just breaking down and you know it's God intervening in your life or whatever that happens to be, that the, the word of God comes to you. Or maybe you're sitting in a message and you ever had that time when you're sitting in a Bible study and it's like you're the only person in the room and God's got his hand on you. He's putting his finger on your soul. This is, this is like that, that God is saying that I want to do some things. And there's two reasons why he did it then. And, there, and why he does it today. Primary reasons. Number one, God wants holy people. That's the number one reason. God wants holy people. You see, these people, they were religious, yet rebellious. And, and people are like that. We tend toward that. We like religious stuff. We like to go through religious things. The reason is because I can check it off of my list of things to do, but have no actual relationship with God. And so I feel like I've done something right when actually my relationship with God is broken. And so these religious yet rebellious people are thinking, I've done, I've done God a service. I, I went through the religious motions, but I'm just living my life however I want to. And God says, no, that's, that's not what I want. I want holy people because the religious yet rebellious are in danger of, of a false hope of salvation. 
They, they might be good on the outside in terms of going through the right motions, and yet they're not actually regenerate. They're not actually saved. They haven't had the transformative power of Jesus impact them so they're no longer darkness, now they're light. They're just trying to put on their own false pretense of light. They're trying to generate their own goodness, their own light. That's a, a, uh, an example of God's or an imitation of his. Uh, they also... Uh, those who maybe they are saved, but they, but they go through this self-inflicted suffering. You ever go through self-inflicted suffering because of your sin? You do something that you know is wrong and you do it anyway, and then there's suffering that comes as a result of it. That, that's what happens when we're religious and yet rebellious. And so God wants holy people because relationship with God produces lives that are like God. That's what relationship with God does. And so that's what we're doing here at Redemption. That's why we open the Bible. That's why we go through it together. That's why we pursue God the way that we do because we want to be a people who are more like him. That, that prayerfully, today I'm less like me and more like him than I was yesterday. That I'm progressing more and more into Christ. Here's how John the Baptist said it. He said, I want to decrease that he might increase. That's the heart attitude that we come at this with is to say, I want to be a holy people. Secondly, not only does God want holy people, but he wants more people. God wants more people. Contrary to popular belief, we're not all children of God. Just because you're human, that doesn't mean you're part of the family of God. The Bible teaches the exact opposite. The Bible teaches that we are wayward and away and rebellious and enemies of God and that he has to adopt us as his own kids. The only kids that are part of God's family are the ones he's adopted into his family through the blood of Jesus. That's the payment. That's the price that had to be paid. And when we receive the salvation that, that God offers to us through the blood of Jesus, we become a part of his family. And so not only does God want holy people, but he wants more people. I, I unashamedly say, I want our church to grow. I want our church to grow. Not because I want to say, look how awesome we are. And like, let's count all the people and say, look, look, we're great. We're so cool. And then we can, I can go to like pastor's conferences and I can say, how many people go to your church? Oh yeah, well, here's how many people come to my church. Like that, no, no. I want our church to grow. I want the other church to grow down the street and the church over there to grow. I want, I want the churches who are faithful to the gospel of Jesus, I want them all to grow. Why? Because so long as there is one lost soul in our city, the church is not big enough. And as soon as our entire city is saved, you know what's next to us? Another city. <laughs> and th th this just keeps going and going and going. That there are, the, the church has not grown to the, to the point to where it should unless everybody knows about Jesus, unless everybody's been brought into relationship with him. God wants more people. The lost are found through those who are already his. Did you know that God's plan A to reach those lost people are, is you? You're his plan A. You're like, God, you should probably come up with a different plan. Like this. <laughs> I don't, know. I don't know if this was a good idea. <laughs> the people who don't know the Lord, God's plan to reach them is you, his church. And you know what? There's no plan B. There's no plan B. We are the hope of the world. If you're in Christ, God wants to use you, your gifts, your talents, your influence, your capacity, your ability, the people who are in your life. God wants to use you to impact them. God wants holy people and God wants more people. You see, the holiness is the pathway to usefulness. If you want God to use you, holiness is the way it's going to happen. So pursue the Lord in holiness. Pursue the Lord in relationship. And as he transforms you, he'll use you. 
He'll use you in ways that you never thought were even possible. Now, Malachi chapter 4, essentially what chapter 4 is, is it's saying that the previous three chapters all matter because Messiah is coming as both Savior and Judge. That's what chapter 4 is about. All of this other stuff matters because God wants holy people, right? That's what all the six disputes are about. I want my people to be holy. And then chapter 4 is about judgment is coming and I want more people to be in my family so that they don't go through the judgment that they deserve for their sin. That's, that's what chapter 4 is all about. It's a, it's a very evangelical kind of uh, a chapter. So let's look at verses 1 through 3 in this first section, the coming judgment. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. That will leave them neither root nor branch. So here Malachi concludes by pointing our attention to the very end of time. This is how chapter 4 concludes, the, the, the end of the book of Malachi. It's, it, he points our attention all the way to the end of time. Now notice there, there's a couple of times in this verse that it says the day. You see that there, the day? The, the day is an event that's spoken of throughout the Bible. Over and over again, there's this idea of the day. Now, it's not just this one concept of day. There's actually three different potential meanings for the word day in the Bible. And so we've got to figure out whenever we come across this word day, what does it mean? Well, the, the first one is it could mean a literal 24-hour period of time. That's what the word day could mean. Like when you open your Bible to Genesis chapter 1 and you're reading through that and it says that God created this on this day and this on that day and this on the other day. There's a bunch of debate out there about, well, how long was it? Was it like eons of time? Was it like one, there's like one billion years and then God created this and that or the other thing? I can tell you really, it's real simple. It's really, really easy. When you actually look at Genesis chapter 1 in verse 5 and then following for every day, it says this. The evening and the morning were the first day. Does that sound to you like billions of years or a day? Like, it's, it's actually more simple. God really actually, it's a day. It was 24 hours of time. It's very easy. We don't have to get all weird and crazy and go, well, how did this like happen and all these things? So whatever. All right. I got a lot to say about that, but I'm going to keep moving on. It's the evening and the morning, a literal 24 hour period of time. Okay. That's one of the words for day in the Bible. There's also in the Bible an undefined period of time. Like there's a coming day somewhere. Something's happening out there that, that's going to happen. In 2 Peter 3, 8, uh, it says that a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years to the Lord. So it's kind of this undefined sort of, you know, it could be this, could be that. It's an undefined period of time. That could be a day. That, that's what it could be referring to. And it also could be like what we see here in chapter 4 of Malachi, the idea of an exact time. Like if you were to say, back in my day, you know, uh, that, that's the idea here when, when you use that phrase of, of day. You're not saying a, a specific day. You know, like for me, I think when I was in my early 20s, Maybe for you, you don't think about your early 20s because you're, you're either not there or you're way further than that. Uh, but that's when I think back in my day, that's kind of what I think. You know, back, back in my day, I used to be able to touch a basketball rim and I dunked a basketball a couple of times. You're like, you're a six foot tall white guy. How did that happen? I, that's, a, that's a miracle. The Lord <laughs> helped me. Um, but that was back in my day. Now I'm nearly 40 and I cannot do that. Uh, and so uh, th that's the idea. Now the way that you know what day it's talking about is the context. The context tells you. 
Is it a 24-hour period? Is it just a random period of time that's undefined? Or is it just this very specific period of time? What are we talking about? Well, the context tells us. And here in chapter uh, 4, what we see as we look through the chapter that this day is defined by, in verse 1, burning, a burning fire like an oven. See that? We also see that in verse 3, there's trampling that takes place. Um, There's also... um, uh, in verse 3, that God does it. Do you see that there at the end of verse 3? He says, I do this on the day that I do this. In verse 5, it's dreadful. In verse 6, it's called a curse. So here are the defining things that tell us what this day is about. And when we look at this, when we, when we see this, that this is showing us, it's pointing us ahead to the time of what Revelation describes. With the book of Revelation, the end of time is what it's describing for us. Also, we're told here in verse 1, who it's for. Notice there, it says, The day is coming, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. Will be stubble. Now, when you think about stubble, stubble is essentially when you think of like a kernel of wheat and uh, how you, if you take the kernel of wheat, you have to separate it from the outer shell, the chaff kind of part of it. The part that you eat, the wheat, the outside part, that's the stubble. It just kind of burns up. And it's, you know, if you've ever burned something like that, you throw it into a fire and it immediately is consumed. It's completely gone. It even talks here in verse one about the idea of at the end of verse one, it says, leave them neither root nor branch. That's like to say this, this is burning so hot, it's going to go down and take all the roots of the tree out as well. This is, it's speaking of an eternal kind of a judgment. That's what it's talking about. There's no coming back from this. There's no, once this fire comes, once this fire drops, that's, that's it. That's, that's all, that's it for, for whoever is consumed by it. Now notice that it talks about there in verse one, who it's for, it's for the proud and those who do wickedly. Just, just real quick, take a survey of your heart. Has that ever defined you? Those are kind of all-encompassing words, aren't they? That if I think about my life, if I survey my heart, I mean, maybe even driving here to church, you're like, yep, I was, I was proud and I did wickedly. I really wanted to run that guy off the road because he was in my way or whatever. Like, whatever it is, that there's, there's things in your life that, that are raised up like this. This is a very all-encompassing kind of a thing. Let me ask it to you this way. Let me use different sins. Um, how many lies does it take for you to be a liar? One. <laughs> right? That's it. As soon as you lie, you're now a liar. How many things do you have to steal to become a thief? One. One. Right? That's it. And so when we, when we like measure ourselves against the law of God, anybody pass the test of, of God's law? <laughs> no? Okay, if you did, then um, right here, verse one, proud, that's, that's you. We should talk afterward. <laughs> the thing is that if we don't see ourselves in this, if we read this and we go, yeah, it's those bad people, get them, Lord. If we don't see us, then we are more prideful and more arrogant than we realize. This is me. That I am the proud. I am the wicked. That, that there's this, this backdrop of, of, of uh, darkness and lost hope that is painted for us because perfection is the standard and anything less is failure. You see, I, I, this, this includes me. This is, this is me. And then, aren't you glad verse two is written there? I love when verse two comes. The very first word, but. I love when the Bible says, but. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. What, what an amazing thing. You see, against this dark and hopeless backdrop, the son of righteousness arises. And this healing comes out to the people. 
that there is hope for us in those who fear his name, that there is hope that's found in Jesus. I mean, this is very clearly, it's speaking of Jesus. Now in Malachi, I'll I'll point that out to you here in just a second a little bit more clearly, but in Malachi chapter three, if you were with us when we went through that, in verse two, the the Lord is spoken of like fire in chapter three. He's also spoken of here in 4.1, like fire as well. And in both of these cases, the Lord is coming with fire. But in chapter 3, it's for a very different purpose than it is in chapter 4. God is still coming with fire, and he remains the same, but the result is vastly different. And the difference is all about this, that one brings refining. That's in chapter 3. The fire is brought for the refining. Here in chapter 4, it's brought for the ruin. The, the difference there is one brings refining, one brings ruin. And, and in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 through 29, it says this, Since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe. Listen, for our God is a devouring fire. Another, the New King James says our God is a consuming fire. That God remains the same. He, our God, is a consuming fire. And his consuming fire is going to pass over your life. The difference is, is is anything going to be left when the consuming fire of God comes across your life? Is everything going to be burned up? Because nothing is valuable, because everything was sinful, because everything was selfish, because everything was chaff, was, was like this stubble. We're all going to experience the consuming fire of God. Every single one of us. Even even the people who don't think they believe in God at all. We all are going to pass through the consuming fire of God. And some, it's going to refine. And for others, it will bring ruin. And the difference is the material. The material. Think of it like this. As I was thinking about this, I was trying to think of, what's a way to illustrate this? Well, one of the things that I I think about in this is is, is my wedding day. Like, what are you talking about? All right, so on my wedding day, I remember, um, you know, my wife and I, she wasn't my wife yet. She was my fiance. uh, And then she came down this aisle and she stood with me in front of everybody. And she said, uh, I want you to be my husband. And I'm like, wow, that's crazy. I have no idea why you would say that, but I'm thankful. Um, And to this day, the Lord's still, you know, giving her a strong delusion so that we're 17 years in and she hasn't left. Uh, And so... (laughs) <laughs> we're, you know, we're, we're building this life together and, and we're, we're standing in front of everybody and, and committing ourselves to the Lord. And as we do this, as we give ourselves to the, to, to the Lord and to one another in this, in this act of marriage, in that moment, God performs a miracle, right? We went up there as two and we went back off away from that altar as one. Now, it, did, it wasn't like a Disney movie where like we were picked up by this swirling light and like, whoa, you know, and then we were sat down and then we were joined or whatever. Nothing like that happened. It didn't feel the way that, you know, you might think of with a Disney movie or whatever. But nonetheless, the miracle took place. God performed a miracle in that moment. And so too is the way that God performs a miracle. When you surrender your life to Jesus, he performs a miracle in that moment. When you recognize that Jesus went to the cross, not because of him, not because of the mean Romans, not because the Jews were so bad and and they betrayed him, not because of any of that. Jesus went to the cross because of me, my sin. And he went there and he willingly laid his life down. His blood 
poured out to pay the price for my sin. When you recognize that and you believe in that and you surrender to Jesus, he performs a miracle in that moment. He takes you from dead to alive. He takes you from darkness to light. He takes you from stubble to gold. That's what God does. Your material changes. And then as the fire of God passes over your life, it's not for your destruction, it's for your purification. It's very different. But the difference in how you come through the fire of God has everything to do with the kind of material that you are. So here's the question. Has God performed that miracle in you? Have you received the salvation that he supplies? Have you given your life, have you accepted the, the free offer of salvation that Jesus gives to you? Have, you? have you come to the understanding that Jesus sacrifices for you? If that's true, then his fire, yes, it passes over our lives, but it'll be for your refining. If you refuse that message, if you say that, nah, I don't really want to, I don't really want to take that, then that that fire of God is, pa- is going to pass over your life and it's going to be for your complete ruin, not for your benefit whatsoever. See, the Old Testament refers to the coming Savior, or the Messiah, as a light. A lot of different times. Here's a couple of different places. In Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, the first part of it, it says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Speaking of the Messiah, look at and, and it says this, a star shall come out of Jacob referring to the Messiah as a star, very similar to the, this idea of a son of righteousness, right? This, this star that rises. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 1 says this, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. This idea of God's glory shining through the Messiah. Now, Jesus was identified as this light in a prophecy at John the Baptist's birth. In in Luke chapter 1, verse 78, there's this prophecy that's spoken over John the Baptist at his birth by his dad. And uh, because his dad was a priest and he speaks this prophecy over him. And and, and as he does this, Jesus is mentioned in, in this prophecy. It says this in verse 78, through the tender mercy of God with which the day spring from on high has visited us. That day spring is Jesus. Think of it like this. Have you ever watched the sunrise? Have you ever seen the glory and beauty of the sunrise? It's just, it's so dark and, and, and you start to see some, some different shades of color start to come out of the, the distant horizon. And then there's a moment when the sun finally peaks over the horizon and this glorious yellow and gold and orange spills across the landscape. That's the day spring. It's like the day is, is springing to life. That's Jesus. In the darkness of night that we go through, in the hopelessness that we have, Jesus springs forth and springs forth this this light into our lives. He is the day spring. You see the shining glory of Jesus. Notice there, as as you look at verse two, it says, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. This light that Jesus brings, the light of Jesus, his shining righteousness is, is my healing. It's not my righteousness. It's not my ability to stand right before God or, you know what, I just got to kind of clean myself up before I go and present myself to God because I'm kind of dirty. I'm kind of jacked up. I really don't want God to see my, all my messed up parts. Hey, he sees it already. Just so you know, he already knows. He already sees all of it. You don't have to clean any of it up. He sees it all. Just come to him. Just give yourself to him. Just, just with dirt and grime and all and his light will shine and bring healing 
and bring you into himself in a tremendous, tremendous way. Think of it like this. And when the, you know, on a sunny, sunny day, like a day very much like today, very, very bright, very sunny day, who in their right mind goes outside and takes a candle and says, man, it's just, I just need this candle in order to add to the light. It's just not bright enough. Like, do you think that the candle is adding anything to the light of a sunny day? Not at all. It's ridiculousness. That is like me trying to add my goodness to the goodness of Jesus. That somehow I've got to earn my place with God. Somehow I've got to get him to like me more. Somehow I've got to cause him to receive me as, as something else by my goodness. It's like as silly as taking a candle outside saying, I can't really see very well. I need this candle in order to help me uh, see in the shining of the day. Verse 3 says this, you shall trample the wicked for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. You see, there's a day of reckoning coming. God is just, God is right, and he is going to make all wrongs right. That's just, that's just the truth. That's what God's going to do. He will. He'll absolutely, absolutely do this. It's as if, think of it like if, uh, you know, somebody, let's say somebody murders a family member that you have, and uh, they get they get caught by the police and they're awaiting their court date, right? Their court date, when they stand before a good judge, right? You know, that's a hard thing to think about in this day. A good judge, right? Okay, so they stand, they stand in front of a good judge. And as they're standing in front of this good judge, the court date for them is dread. And for you, it's joy because you know that they're going to get the justice that they deserve, right? That, that's the idea here, that God is just, that God is going to deal with all the wrongs. That all the things that we think about, like, God, how could you let that happen? How could you let that take place? How could this happen in our world, that this injustice is taking place? When we think about that and we think, God, you're silent, you haven't intervened, you didn't do anything, we're thinking too short term. God is going to deal with all of it. God is just. God is right. He is perfect. And and it is all going to be dealt with one day. But the only ones who survive the fire of God's judgment are those who are in Christ. Exodus 33 says it sort of like this as a sort of an illustration for us. Exodus 33, 21 through 23. This is when Moses is meeting with God. God is communicating with him about his commands and everything. And Moses says to God, God, let me see your glory. I want to see you, Lord. I, I need more of you. It says this, the Lord continued, look, stand near me on this rock. As my glorious presence passes by, I will hide you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll remove my hand and let you see me from behind, but my face will not be seen. You see, this illustrates for us that that glorious presence of God, the fire of God that would consume everything. And here, the way that Moses is saved, even the great Moses couldn't just stand in front of God, but the way that he is saved is he has to stand on the rock, We're told that Jesus is the rock of my salvation. Where does he have to stand? In the the crevice. That God actually puts him in the crevice of the rock. That that this is the, the body of Jesus that has been split open for us. It's where our healing comes from. It's where we are found and made whole. It's the torn body of Jesus. That all of this is is foreshadowing and showing us of the glory of God and how we experience salvation through Jesus. Interestingly in this, uh, one of the things that, that, uh, just as an aside, it says there uh, at the very end, it says, then I'll remove my hand and let you see me from behind. 
Um, some theologians actually think that this is not necessarily seeing God's back as much as it is God saying, I'm going to go and then I'm going to be gone and you get to see where I was. That, that God's presence is so glorious, so amazing, so powerful that as, as Moses is able to step out of the cleft and see that where God was, that's what causes his face to shine as he comes back down from the mountain. It's not even necessarily God himself. It's just where God was that's so impactful upon Moses. Not only do we see that judgment is coming in this first part of Malachi chapter 4 verses 1 through 3, but secondly, there's a coming redemption. There's a coming redemption. Look at verse 4. It says this, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and the judgment. You see, we know about God's holiness and we know about humanity's sinfulness, and we know about God's standard of perfection, and we know about our inability to hold to that standard. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we also know about our need for a Savior, all because of God's Word. That's the only reason we know about any of those things. The reason that we can have any sort of, of standard to say, you, you're living in sin, you're doing this wrong, that, that God is perfect and holy and just, the, the, that I've been, I, I have the opportunity to be saved by grace through faith in Jesus. The only reason we know any of that is because the word of God says it to us. That's how we know. That's why we have confidence in these things. And so God tells his people here, remember the law of Moses, remember my word. And he's telling them to remember because we have the tendency, don't we, to drift into forgetfulness. We drift into complacency. We drift away from the things of God. We drift away from truth. And, and, and the, the reality is that because we have the tendency to do that, we require perpetual reminding. We need perpetual reminding. I need to be reminded of the things of the Lord over and over and over and over again. And, and the amazing thing is that as you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, that as you grow in your faith and as you spend some time developing in your relationship with God, the, the amazing thing happens is that as you come through that growth and you have some more maturity, you come back to those things which you had previously learned. You're reminded of something that you learned before and you can see it from a completely different perspective. You understand it with, with newfound wisdom and depth that you couldn't even understand before. The way I think about this is the way I read uh, Proverbs today versus the way I read Proverbs when I was 19. When I read through Proverbs, I was like, this is weird. I don't really get any of this stuff. And, and it just kind of seemed like, well, I don't know. I'm not, it says in the beginning that if you want to be wise, read this. So I'm like, all right, I'm just going to do it, I guess. And now as I look through Proverbs, I think, Oh my goodness, it is, it is filled with such depth of wisdom and understanding. And I can't believe God said it like that. He could have said it so many different ways. And, and the reason why is because I've grown in my relationship with the Lord. And I've also had some stuff happen in life. I've had some things happen in life that give me a different kind of perspective when I read God's word. And so we see that we need to be reminded. And so God says, remember the law of Moses. Now, in verse 5, we're also told there, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet for, uh, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. God tells us that Elijah is going to be sent before him. And this prophecy of Elijah coming before him has a two-part fulfillment. Um, and it, 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 it's uh, fulfilled in the first and the second coming of Jesus. That in the first coming of Jesus, he comes as Savior 
In the second coming of Jesus, he comes as judge. All right, so this is, this is how we see this taking place with Elijah. Now, Jesus identified John the Baptist as fulfilling this scripture. In Matthew eleven fourteen. 14, Jesus said this, and if you're willing to accept what I say, he, speaking of John the Baptist, is Elijah, the one uh, the, one the prophets said would come. This, Jesus is saying, John the Baptist is the fulfillment of this scripture. But something that's really interesting is that John the Baptist was asked directly if he was Elijah and if he was the one the prophet spoke about here. Um, it says in John 1 21, uh, John the Baptist uh, is responding to them. They, they said, well then, who are you? They asked, are you Elijah? And he said, no. It says, no, he replied. And it says, are you the prophet we're expecting? No. So what is, is this like a weird contradiction? Uh, Elijah's like, I'm not Elijah. Jesus is like, he's Elijah. Well, what is happening here? What is, what's going on? Is this a contradiction? No, it's a partial fulfillment. It's a, it's a, it, just like Jesus, his coming is, is fulfilled in two installments, the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. So too the coming of Elijah previous to Messiah, to Jesus, comes in two installments. And so uh, John the Baptist comes as Elijah in, in this first installment. Luke one seventeen, it says this, but he will be a man, it's, it's speaking again of John the Baptist and, and his ministry and what he's going to do. He'll be a man uh, with the spirit and power of Elijah. He'll prepare the people for the coming of the Lord and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of of the godly. See there how it says in the beginning is he's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's not going to be a literal in reincarnation of Elijah, but he's coming in the ministry or the spirit and the power of Elijah. You see at Jesus first coming, this is John the Baptist. But notice there as, as we're looking through this in verse five, that Elijah is going to become when? before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Anybody read through the Gospels and thought, that was a great and dreadful day? Nope, <laughs> right? There's, Jesus is healing people. He's feeding people. He's you know, telling people about God's goodness. He's going to the cross on our behalf. There's nothing dreadful about that whatsoever. That is glorious and hope-filled. So this is not talking about the first coming of Jesus. It's pointing us ahead to a future fulfillment in Revelation. Something else that's interesting here as we look at this is in verses 4 and 5, we see that Moses and Elijah are both named. You see that there? That they're here coupled together. And the, the scriptures, the Bible does this multiple times. Where Moses and Elijah are coupled together, that they appear together or they have similar kinds of things that take place in them. And, and here, the reason that they're coupled together, and, and we, we even see this in the New Testament, is that they're told um, that we're told that the Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets, which is sort of a euphemism for saying the whole Bible of the Hebrews, like the whole Old Testament. And so it's a way of saying all of God's scriptures. And so when we see this, when we see Moses and Elijah together like that, it's a way of referring to all of the whole Old Testament. But also in this, we see that they, you know, they kind of are representative of their own thing. That, that when we remember the law of Moses, that we have to keep in mind that a faithful recounting of the law always leads us to one end. That when I look through the law of God, it brings me to the end of realizing I can't keep it. Therefore, I have no hope in myself. 
that we don't look at the law and say, here's a list of things and check, check, check. I'm awesome. We look at it and say, I can't do that. I have no hope in me. I need someone else to help me. Galatians chapter three, verses 22 through 24 says it like this. But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. Before the way of uh, faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. Uh, The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. What Galatians 3, 22 through 24 is telling us is that the point of the law is not for me to feel like I earned God's favor, but to realize I never can apart from faith. That faith is how I earn God's favor. That, that God has given me his favor in no way of my earning whatsoever. Not only do we see the law, but also the prophets. The prophets all have this thing in common, that, that essentially when you read through the prophets, here's kind of the thing that you see, that the people don't obey God's law, then they receive the consequences of that, and then there's a, a pointing ahead to the coming Savior who will fix everything. The, the pointing ahead to the Messiah. That's when you, there you go, now you understand all the prophets, right? That's, that's basically how all the prophets work. The people don't do God's law, they bear the consequences, and then they're pointed ahead to someone who saves them, the coming Messiah. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says this. It's speaking directly of the time uh, when the nation of Israel was leaving Egypt through, through the Exodus, but it also speaks of the Old Testament in general as well. It says this, these things happen to them, happen to the people of the, of the scriptures, as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. That when we read about what happened in the scriptures, it's not just old stories about old dead guys. And it's like, oh, he probably had a cool beard. It's more than that. It's, it's to say this stuff took place in their lives. I need to learn some principles out of this stuff. I need to take some of this with me and go forward in my life. And we've got to be really careful as we read through the scriptures not to fall into some sort of attitude of historical arrogance, you ever read history and think, those are dumb people. Why did they do that thing, right? We, we have a tendency to read the Bible and go, man, Israel's so dumb. Why did they do that? We need to look at that and say, that's me. Not they're dumb and I'm awesome. But to say, that's a picture of me. I do the same dumb things. I fall into the same dumb traps. If there's a hole and God says, don't fall in it, then I have a tendency to go right to the edge and say, what hole? This one and fall in. That that's, that's who we are as people. And unless he intervenes, We're going to wreck our own lives. We're going to throw ourselves off of the cliff that we need him to intervene and to save us. Here we see that Moses Moses and Elijah are coupled together and there's a a few ways in which they have a similar kind of a thing. Look in verse verse 4 where it says that, uh, it says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb. See that there? Horeb is another way of saying Mount Sinai. It's the same place. It's the same mountain. It's the same... Uh, same thing that's going on there. Uh, for Moses, this is where he saw the burning bush. This is also where he was given the Ten Commandments. Elijah heard the still small voice on this mountain. They both met with God there on that mountain. They both had that kind of a thing going on. Both Moses and Elijah, they didn't die in the way that everybody else dies. You know, like you don't really read about Moses dying. It just says that he went off to a mountain. God showed him the land. He said, hey, there it is over there. And then he just was gone. He just, he died. Is, is what it said. Elijah, the fiery you know, chariot, you try to ride in a fiery chariot and see if you live. Um, so I don't know how that worked. It probably wasn't, 
Maybe it was awesome. I don't know. It doesn't sound fun to me. But um, so he's riding away like that. Um, and, and so they both don't die in a normal way. They're both taken by God. Also in Matthew 17, 1, they both appear on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses and Elijah appear over and over again. They're, they're coupled together over and over again throughout scriptures. And many people say because of this, the reality that they're coupled together, and also because of the, the way that they're described here in Malachi, and then also the way that um, they perform certain miracles, um, and the similarity of the miracles in Revelation 11, that these are probably the two uh, witnesses in, in Revelation 11. What I'll say is that there are a lot of teachers and pastors who speculate a whole bunch about this, and what I'll say is, that's speculation. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. That, that's really all I'm going to say. I don't know who the two, two witnesses in Revelation 11 are. It could be these guys. It could be not them either, but there you go. Uh, so you can go speculate all you want. All right, verse 6, as we, as we wrap it up, says this, And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Now here we, we see that the ministry of Elijah is to turn the people back to relationship with one another through relationship with God. That that's what God, his, his goal is to do, is to bring reconciliation. But this is more than just an individual family reconciliation. That second phrase there, the hearts of the children to their fathers, that also carries with it the idea of the people now returning to the God of their forefathers. That as we look back at the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that the nation of Israel returns to the Lord. And we look at Revelation and we see the 144,000 that come back to the Lord. And essentially what that's saying is that really like the whole nation of Israel gets saved uh, in Revelation, that this is the, the ministry of John the Baptist is to bring people back to their, uh, to, to their God. And, and this clearly did not happen at Jesus' first coming, right? They rejected him. They, they still to this day reject him. It will happen uh, at the second coming of Jesus. Now, one of the things that's crazy about this book, about the book of Malachi, is that as Malachi closes down, there is a 400-year silence from heaven. That this is the last thing that's said until John the Baptist shows up, right before Jesus, is the prophet that comes before Jesus. 400 years. Think about that for just a second. That's nearly twice as long as our nation has existed. That's a long time. That's a very long time. 400 years silence from heaven, and that only breaks when John the Baptist comes on the scene as that forerunner of Jesus. Here's the thing that I want to encourage you with in this, that when God is silent... Don't lose heart because he's already spoken. Remember what God, the last thing God says to the people as he closes this down? Remember the law of Moses. He's about to go silent on them, but he says, go to my word. Look at what I've already told you. Look at, look at who I've revealed myself to be to you through my scriptures. When God is silent, don't despair because we have his word. We need to rely less on a supernatural experience and more on what he has already said to us in his scriptures. That this is how we hear from God. We need to rely less on some sort of thing that happens where God speaks to me from heaven and moves in my heart some emotional way. Yes, God can do that. Yes, God does do that from time to time. But we need to rely more on what he's already told us. And if we will just rely on his scriptures and just rely on what he's actually said, then when he moves us in some sort of emotional way, we can know if it's in line and if it's actually him or if it's just us or if it's some, maybe you, you know, shouldn't have had 
onions on your pizza or maybe it's that, you know, maybe it's the enemy trying to deceive you. The way you're going to know is through what he's already said. We need to rely on the things that God has already told us. Now, one of the things that's crazy about this is that we see that the Old Testament ends with a curse. Do you see that there? The very last thing it says is that I'm going to strike the earth with a curse. Like, that's terrible, <laughs> you know? Like this is, a, this is like a bad ending to the book. What in the world is going on here? This, this is terrible. Some, some actually, some um, rabbis didn't like that. And they actually repeat verse five in some of their manuscripts because they're like, there's no way that we can have the, the, you know, our, our, our word from God end with a curse. And so they actually repeat verse five in order to get away from that. But this is how it ends. It actually ends with the idea of a curse. And what this is, is a foreshadowing of the dreadful day of the Lord and the curse that people will endure for their refusal to repent. If you refuse to repent, if you refuse to abandon your sin and turn your life over to Jesus, if you refuse and you hold on, you will endure curse instead of blessing. That's what he's, that's what he's telling us. It's, it's amazing to think, though, not only just about how the Old Testament ends with a curse, but about how the New Testament ends. Here's the very last verse in the Bible. In Revelation twenty two twenty one. it says this, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. What a completely different ending. Instead of the promise of a curse, there's the promise of grace and salvation. What an amazing thing that Jesus is the fulfillment of it all. Jesus is the one who makes all the wrongs right. Jesus is the one who puts it all back together. And what we truly need is simply Jesus. He's our God. He's our King. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. He's our gracious Redeemer. Where we are weak, He is strong. Where we fail, He succeeds. Where we have no hope, He is our eternal hope. He is everything. And if the Son of Righteousness has shined upon you, then He brings with that tremendous healing. Tremendous supernatural spiritual healing to where you can be made right, you can be made whole, you can be made well. Do you know him? Is your faith in him? Do you need to turn to him? Do you need to return to him? Do you need to bring your life before him and say, God, would you fix the mess that I've made? Would you put the parts back together of all the things that I don't understand? God, would you take the future that seems so crazy and I just don't know how it's all gonna go. I'm gonna trust you with it. I'm just gonna say, you know what to do even when I don't because you're so good. You, you look at all of human history and you understand it all. What's my life? I can, I can trust you with it. If I can trust Jesus for eternity, why can't I trust him with my right now? My right here, right now. You see, the sun of righteousness is shining. His, sh his light is shining upon our lives. And, and I want to ask if you've given your life to him. And so if you haven't, then do that. Or if today's the day where you need to come back to him and give your life to him once again, then do that. He stands ready to receive you. Not to destroy you, not to let the fire consume you. Yeah, his fire of judgment does consume some things. But those things, you don't need those in your life. You need them burned away. You need that refining fire of God in your life. So submit that to him. Submit your life to him. Allow him to do the work that only he can do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word together. We thank you for the chance to study it. And we thank you for this book of Malachi as we've looked into this prophet and all of the different things that he has to say by your spirit. And we just thank you that it matters not just to him in his day and age, but to us today too that you have things to say to us. 
And we pray together as we um, conclude this book that you would help us to take heed of these six disputes and to realize the way that we tend to drift away from you and that we would look to you, Jesus, as the author and the finisher of our faith. So God, bring your salvation to us, bring your redemption upon us and cause us to turn or return to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.